It's not every Sunday that you walk into church and see two huge men dressed as nuns sitting in the front row. But one day, back when I was actually on MTS, that's exactly what happened. I walked into church and I saw two nuns' habits and I thought, well, that's unusual. We don't often get nuns coming along to our church. But I thought, well, you know, I'll I'll walk over to them and I'll try and make them feel welcome. As I got closer, I thought, well, they're really muscular nuns. As I got closer still, I got a little bit more suspicious because, you see, not every nun has skulls tattooed onto her knuckles. I think, though, in the end, what gave it away were the beards. And so I sat down and I I introduced myself and I was immediately hit by this alcoholic haze as the nun nearest to me said, G'day, I'm Mother Mary Megamouth. (laughs) Now, what would you say to that? Well, I didn't actually get a chance to say anything because the other nun leaned across and said, Alaya, I'm Mother Mary quite contrary. (laughs) And I thought, well... This is why I did MTS, I guess. <laughs> and we chatted for a bit. We chatted for about five, ten minutes before the meeting began. And it was actually all really good. But about ten minutes into the meeting, they got up and they left. And I did that thing where I sat there inwardly debating, do I follow, do I not? And I thought, blow it. I'll have a crack. And so I raced out to the car park and I asked them if they wanted to talk. And Mother Mary Megamouth who at this point suddenly seemed very, very sober, said to me, do you think God hates homosexuals? And I thought, oh. I said, well, look, I'm not sure that Jesus hates anyone the way you mean hate. I think Jesus loves people. And he said, well, do you think that Jesus hates homosexuality? I said, well, yeah, look, Jesus is against homosexuality, yeah. He said, well, I don't want to believe in your Jesus. And I knew at this point that I was on fairly touchy ground, but I thought, well, they're only nuns, what can they do to me? (laughs) And so I said, well, what if my Jesus is the real Jesus? And I'll never forget his response. He said, I don't even want to think about that. And he walked away. And that conversation has stayed with me for the last 23 years. He would rather believe in a Jesus that he knows is made up than to confront the real one. He had what a friend of mine has sometimes called a beanbag Jesus. A beanbag doesn't really have a shape of its own, does it? What it does is just moulds to the shape of your backside, and that's how most people would prefer to think of Jesus. I like to think of Jesus as, and and then we say what we want Jesus to be like. He moulds to our shape. So if I'm gay, I like to think of a Jesus who agrees with homosexuality. If I'm racist, then my Jesus is white. If I'm feminist, then my God's a woman. If I'm greedy, then Jesus wants me to be rich. It's a beanbag, Jesus. But we've just met a very different Jesus in Revelation 1, haven't we? Revelation presents us with a confronting Jesus. 
who's far more challenging than we ever dreamed. And rather than Jesus moulding to us, the challenge we're going to face this weekend is for us to mould to him, to mould our thinking to his, to mould our dreams to his dreams, the way we see the world, the whole direction of our lives. Have you come here this weekend ready for Jesus to push you around? Have you come here ready for Jesus to shake you up and change your life? Because Revelation is a wonderful book for expanding our vision and changing our lives. And yet it's a strange book, isn't it? The images of beasts and dragons and cups and trumpets. Most of us find Revelation just a little bit bonkers. John Calvin, who Derek mentioned, the great theologian, said, Revelation either finds men mad or leaves them that way. Which is good news for this weekend, isn't it? If you're not mad yet, you will be by Monday. What is this strange book? Well, look, John actually tells us what he's doing in the first few verses. Have a look in verse 1. The revelation from or of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near." The introduction actually tells us what to think of this book. Firstly, it's a revelation. The Greek word is apocalypse. It's where we get the phrase apocalyptic literature from. But it really is just something that is revealed. See, that's something you have to realize about Christianity. It's a religion of revelation. It's not that we discover God. It's not that we formulate our thoughts about God. No, God reveals himself to us. We're creatures. More than that, we're sinful creatures. We don't have the capacity to find truth ourselves. We certainly don't have the capacity to find God. No, God has to reveal himself to us. Now, getting this right has actually been a key part of the recent debate we've had about same-sex marriage. So most non-Christians, and in fact even loads of Christians, talk about the God that they want to believe in. The God that they've created in their heads, not the God who's revealed himself. So here's what a non-Christian friend of mine wrote on Facebook. The knowledge of a lifetime, both meditative experience and very sincere research, tells me that any kind of divine consciousness there is, is actually astoundingly open-minded, loving and accepting of all beings and everything in existence, every single molecule, every single being, always and forever. Now, do you see how he's approaching God there? It's through the knowledge of his lifetime. It's through his meditative experience. It's through his research into Eastern mysticism. And what did he come up with? Well, surprise, surprise, a God who just happens to agree with him, a beanbag God. But the book that we're dealing with here is very different. This isn't John's beanbag. This isn't John's reflections on the infinite. No, this is revelation. This is truth from above. In fact, verse 1 
It's revelation from Jesus. But the thing is, it's Jesus' revelation about himself. So you'll notice that I read verse 1 as the revelation of Jesus Christ, because that's what John actually wrote. And look, of is a slightly ambiguous word, isn't it? Of can actually mean a bunch of different things. So think about a jar of clay. It's a jar made of clay, isn't it? But a glass of water, well, it's not a glass made of water, it's a glass filled with water. The man of steel is the man who is as strong as steel. See, of can actually mean a bunch of different things. So what is the revelation of Jesus Christ? Well, I think it's both. It's the revelation from Jesus because Jesus is the main speaker here. He speaks to John. He speaks to the churches. He's called the faithful witness in verse 5. But this book is also the revelation of or about Jesus because the whole book is about Jesus. We've just read this incredible description of Jesus. That is, Jesus is both the revealer and the thing revealed. We're looking at Jesus' revelation about himself. And here's the first thing, the first key to understanding this book. If you get this fact straight, then Revelation actually becomes a cinch. Revelation shows us reality now so that we'll understand what must happen next. Revelation shows us reality now so that we'll understand what must happen next. So look at verse 1 again. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave, his servants to sh- uh, gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. You see, this is a picture from Jesus, about Jesus, and it's showing us what must soon take place. And in fact, the word there for soon is quickly. This is about, this is about what is going to happen quickly. What's about to happen next? What's imminent? What's looming? What is about to take place? John puts it another way in verse 3. Have a look in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written because the time is near. You see, Revelation is a prophecy about what is near. It's not the distant future. No, it's the present reality that governs the distant future. Well, look down in verse 19. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Or what he actually says is, what is about to happen. You see, that's what Revelation is. John sees reality now so that he'll know what's about to happen. Revelation does talk about the end of the world, but really it's, it's everything between now and the end of the world. And notice in verse 1, John says it's what must soon take place. That is, this isn't a possible picture of the future. It's not what might take place, what maybe will happen. Now, the reality that Jesus is about to show us is so compelling that we will know what must happen next. That is, we're about to see things that are inevitable. Because certain realities are like that, aren't they? There are certain things that if you understand the situation now, you'll know what is inevitable. So up on the screen is a good example. There is a picture of reality now, isn't it? Well, actually, it's a picture of Photoshop, but let's assume that it is reality. You now know the reality in this instance. It's not hard to work out what must happen next, is it? 
there's a certain inevitability to what's about to happen. And that guy doesn't know it yet. It hasn't been revealed to him. And so he's not at all prepared for that reality. He's looking at his watch. He's thinking about his next appointment. But there is no next appointment for him, is there? His next appointment is with God. If you know the reality now, you know what must happen next. You see, some present realities are just so compelling that if you understand them, you can see what's inevitable. You'll know what's happening next. And that's what revelation is. Revelation is revealing what is now so that we'll understand what must soon take place. So what is this situation now? What's this present reality that's so compelling that we'll know what is inevitable in the future? Because that would be really helpful for most of you guys to know, wouldn't it? At your particular point in life. Because you're in the midst of making a bunch of decisions about what might soon take place for you. Some of you are in the middle of deciding whether marriage might soon take place for you. Some of you are in the middle of deciding whether travel might soon take place for you. Some of you are in the middle of deciding whether full-time ministry, MTS, might soon take place for you. That is, you're deciding a whole bunch of things that might possibly take place, which means Revelation is a brilliant book for you. Because as you decide what might happen in your future, you're about to see what must happen. You're about to see a reality that's so compelling, it's so crucial, it's so massive, that it determines what must happen next, between now and the end of the world. So what is it? What's this reality? Well, it's Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus, of who He is and what He's done. And this revelation of Jesus is so massive that everything in the universe hangs on it. If you understand this revelation of Jesus, you will know what must happen next. So look in Revelation 1 verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that arouse in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now that is an extraordinary revelation of Jesus, isn't it? It's confronting. It's compelling. 
and it's confusing. Although it's not entirely confusing, is it? Because the overall impression is actually pretty clear, isn't it? What would you make of Jesus if you saw him like John does? If you saw him with his eyes like blazing fire and a sword coming out of his mouth and a face like the sun and feet like glowing bronze, I reckon you'd do what John does, wouldn't you? Verse 17, you'd fall flat on your face. Because this picture, whatever the details of the image might mean, their overall impact is actually pretty darn clear, isn't it? Jesus is majestic here. Jesus is resplendent. He's magnificent. He's terrifying. Because we're not dealing with gentle Jesus, meek and mild here. We're not dealing with my beanbag Jesus, whatever that shape that might take. No, we're dealing with a sword coming out of his mouth, eyes like blazing fire, voices loud as a waterfall Jesus here. And that would scare the pants off me. I reckon I'd be down on the ground with John if I saw this. And yet it is confusing, isn't it? Because what do all of those images mean? What does it mean to have eyes like fire and feet like bronze and, and a sword coming out of you? What do we do with those images? Well, here's where we hit our second key for understanding Revelation. Revelation is informed by the Old Testament. The images that we get in Revelation, they're never random. Jesus doesn't show John arbitrary images. No, he shows John images that are anchored in the Old Testament. They're never exactly the same as the Old Testament, but they're anchored there. And so we can begin to understand this image of Jesus better by looking at the passages from the Old Testament that anchor it. And one of those passages is actually Daniel chapter 10. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. It's very similar, isn't it? Daniel sees a man, and, and he's, he's got a belt of gold, not a sash, but the similarities there, isn't it? Glowing eyes, bronze feet. Daniel meets this incredibly majestic man, really the ultimate man, the, 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 the height of what humanity could be, and that's Jesus in Revelation 1. Because have a look in Revelation 1.13, John sees someone like a son of man, which is just the ordinary way of talking about a human. And John sees a human, doesn't he? Jesus has human features here. He, he, he has hair, he has feet, he's got eyes, he's, he wears clothes. The Jesus in front of John is a human, but he's no ordinary human. No, this is a majestic human. This is a glorious human. John is seeing Jesus as the ultimate human being. But Jesus is more than that though, isn't he? Because some of the things about Jesus here are actually divine. They're not anchored in humans in the Old Testament. They're anchored in God. So whose hair is white like wool in Daniel chapter 7? Well, God's hair. The Ancient of Days. Yahweh is the Old Testament anchor for that image of Jesus here. 
And who has the voice like a waterfall in the Old Testament? Well, in Ezekiel 43, God's voice is like the roar of rushing waters. And who does Ezekiel fall in front of who glows like metal and fire? Well, Ezekiel 1, I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he, was, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down. You see, John isn't just getting a revelation of Jesus as human here. Not even as the ultimate human. No, he's seeing Jesus as God. He's seeing God in all of His glory. That's the picture that we're seeing of Jesus. Jesus is God and man, divine and human, together in one body. That's the picture, the image. And the great thing about this image is the words confirm the image. See, our third key for understanding the book of Revelation is that words and images go together. John sees lots of things in the book of Revelation, and he hears lots of things. And most of the time, they'll actually explain and confirm each other. And that's true of Revelation 1. What's said confirms what's seen. So look what Jesus says about himself in verse 17. John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. You see, Jesus' words confirm the image of him as God. Because who is the first and the last? Who is the living one? Well, it's God, isn't it? In fact, look what God says about Himself in Revelation 1 verse 8. Revelation 1 verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. You see, God is actually the one who's the first and the last. God is the Alpha and the Omega. God is the living one who was and is and is to come, and Jesus deliberately echoes God's words. His words about Himself confirm the image. Jesus is revealing Himself as God to John. And yet Jesus' words say more than that He is God. His words also confirm the image of Himself as the ultimate human. Because look in verse 17 again. He says, I am the first and the last I am the living one, I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Since when did God die and rise? That's not a God thing, is it? No, death is a human thing. Jesus' words confirm the image of Himself as human. In fact, just have a look up there in verse 7. Verse 7, John says, look. He's coming with the clouds, which is actually a clear anchor back to Daniel 7. When Daniel says, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. 
He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. See, Daniel has this incredible vision where a human, a son of man, approaches God's throne in heaven. He comes to God on the clouds and he's given authority and he's given glory and he's given sovereign power. In fact, he's even worshipped there. He is the ultimately glorified human being. And through words and images, that's who John is seeing here in Revelation. He's seeing Jesus as God in all of his splendor, hair like wool falling down before him. He's seeing Jesus as that Son of Man who approaches the throne of God and has received all glory and all authority is now His. All dominion and everlasting dominion is given to this human being. So Jesus says here that He holds the keys to death and Hades because all authority has now been placed in this human's hands. In fact, do you know what we're seeing here? We're seeing Jesus... After his resurrection, approaching God in heaven, he says, I've died, and look, now I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. The reality that we're seeing here is a picture of Jesus in all of his risen, glorified majesty. He's God and man. He's died and risen. He's come to His Father's throne in heaven and He's receiving all splendor in every kingdom that will ever be and everlasting authority that will never pass away. That's the revelation of Jesus that we get here. That's the present reality that determines the future. And so if you get that reality, you know what must happen next, don't you? Rule. Jesus is going to rule. His dominion is going to begin. It's time for glory. It's time for splendor. It's time for power and majesty and judgment and victory and conquering. It's time for the end of the world. See, when I said earlier that Revelation wasn't about the end of the world, I was right But I was also wrong. Revelation is actually about the end of the world. It's just that the end of the world isn't something in the future. The end of the world is happening right now. The end of the world began 2,000 years ago. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus died. And look up there in verse 5. Verse 5, he died because he loves us. He died to free us from our sins by His blood. He died to make us a kingdom and priests to serve His God and Father. That is, 2,000 years ago, Jesus died. But Jesus also rose. And as the Son of Man, Jesus went into heaven. He ascended to His Father in glory to be given authority, 
glory, sovereign power. All nations and people of every language will worship Him and His dominion will be an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and will never be destroyed. All of that happened 2,000 years ago. So Revelation is about the end of the world, but the end of the world isn't distant. It's now. The world is ending now. We live at the very edge of eternity. Now that Jesus has risen, now that He's gone on the clouds to His Father, what must soon take place? Judgment. Rule. That's what. Tumult. War. The final battle between God and sinful humanity. When humans in all of their wickedness are going to fight against God, but Jesus, the divine Jesus, the Son of Man Jesus, will rule them and defeat them and dominate them and judge them. That's what must take place next. Do you realize the times that you're living in? Do you realize that you were born at the end of the world, at the very edge of eternity? We're going, to be, we're going to see this weekend, we haven't been born into times of peace. We haven't been born into times of prosperity. We've been born into cataclysm. We've been born into upheaval. We have been born into the last gasp of humanity and the planet Earth. And serious times call for serious people. While the rest of the world is out there playing games at careers and houses and travel and clothes, we know what is about to happen. We know what's happening around us, the very end of the world. And so we know that we have serious lives to live. That's what this weekend is going to be about. How do you live at the very end of the world? But for now thinking at a, at a personal level, we also know what must happen for every single one of us, personally. What must happen for you now that you've seen this revelation of Jesus with a robe reaching down to His feet and the, the golden sash around Him and, the, and hair like wool and eyes like blazing fire and feet like bronze glowing in a furnace and a voice like the What must happen for you personally? Well, the same thing that happened to John, right? Look in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's the only thing that can happen when you see this Jesus in his splendor. We must worship. What are the things that might take place for you? Marriage? You think you have found the one. Work. You're about to finish uni and you've, oh, the job offer has already come in. You've got a start date. MTS, you've already received the offer. You've already started support raising. Travel. The ticket is already bought the date you're leaving is set in the calendar. See, there are loads of things that might happen to you, and you maybe even think they will take place. But no. There's only one thing that must 
take place. And that is that you worship Jesus. That in your life, in your heart, in your head, that you fall at Jesus' feet as though dead. In Daniel 7 language, that you join the nations and the people of every language who worship this Son of Man. Everyone's going to do it at some point. When Jesus returns, the nations are going to do it in judgment. We get to do it now in worship. And that is the only thing that actually must take place. Everything else, the marriage, the work, the travel, the career, all of those things actually have to fall in line behind it, even full-time ministry. So you might have come here thinking that this weekend is a decision weekend about full-time ministry, but it's not. Really, this is a weekend about will you fall before Jesus? Will you worship Jesus as your God? Will you, be, will you fall before the majesty of Jesus in Revelation 1? Or have you been living with a beanbag Jesus? What does a beanbag Jesus look like in our age? Well, the beanbag Jesus, He is here for me. And He's here to make my life better. And what's my life? Well, my life is a journey. My life is an adventure. My life is about experiences and my life is about fulfillment and travel and exploration and joy. And this is how most people see life now, isn't it? You've seen these pictures? They are so alluring because they combine everything our world worships. There's romance. She's beautiful. Well, at least her back is beautiful. They're together. They're holding hands. There's adventure. They go to exotic places. For guys, there's the fact that she's leading, so she probably did all the organizing, and he didn't have to do any work at all. Those pictures, they're everything the world tells you to want from life, aren't they? We see that image, and we want to walk forward with her. And here's the thing. It's not overtly sinful, is it? Beauty, it's not sinful. Romance and travel, they're not sinful. They are just entirely absorbed in me. My romance, my travel, my adventure, my fulfillment, my experiences. It's, it's a life that falls down at the altar of selfishness. But John, John falls down in front of Jesus Jesus is the one who loved us and who died for us. Jesus is the risen Son of Man. Jesus is the God of the universe. And what must happen is His eternal rule. Will you fall before Him? Will you devote your life to His glory? Will you sacrifice all of your dreams and all of your idols to Him? Will you sacrifice everything for Him? Will you give Him all of your gifts to use as He wants? Will you entrust your reputation to Him? Will you entrust your potential marriage and your children to Him? Will you give Him your happiness for His safeguarding? Will you fall before Jesus as your God? Not by going into full-time ministry, but regardless of whether or not you go into full-time ministry. See, that's the decision you must make this weekend. Will you worship Jesus? 
Which means that for some of us, the decision to go into full-time ministry this weekend, it shouldn't even be on the cards at all. Because we know we haven't been falling before Jesus. We've had a beanbag Jesus. We've been making Jesus the one who fits around me in my life. Jesus is the one who gives me friends. Jesus is the one who gives me answers. Jesus is the one who gives you comfort. Jesus is the one who you can ignore when it suits you, and you can always come back to him because you always know he's going to forgive you. Jesus is a wonderful accessory in your wonderful life. Jesus is that ever-so-comfortable beanbag. But you haven't actually been obeying him. You haven't actually made any sacrifices for his glory. You haven't sacrificed your money for his gospel. You haven't sacrificed your reputation for his truth. You haven't said, Jesus, you tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. If that's where you're at, this weekend just got much bigger than full-time ministry, didn't it? You thought you would come here and someone like me would say, oh, we so need you in full-time ministry. We need your gifts and we need your talents, and Jesus needs you. Will you do us a favor, and will you do Jesus a favor and lend us your brilliance? Here's the thing. Jesus does not need you. The, Revel the Jesus of Revelation 1 doesn't need anybody. But he does own you. And he did die for you. And he does love you. And he saved you to be part of his kingdom. And so maybe for, the, for you this weekend, maybe this is a weekend of repentance and bowing. Maybe you need to say, Jesus, I've been molding you to me. But now I'm going to fall down before you. You tell me what you want, Jesus. You use me according to your will. You take me where you want me to go. You spend me as you will. Now, if you do that, well, this weekend you'll be blessed. That's the promise that John gives us in verse 3. It's a wonderful promise, isn't it? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. Because the time is near. It's so near. We're already on the edge of eternity. Will you pray? Let's pray. Our great God. This is a picture of Jesus that is so huge. This is a Jesus that we can't push around that we can't take for granted, that we can't mould according to our desires, that we can't bring along with us on our journey. This is a Jesus that we can only fall before. We praise you that Jesus who died is risen. We praise you that he has gone to you to receive all glory and power. And we praise you that we know what must happen next. And yet it's a frightening thing to live at the end of the world. We pray for ourselves this weekend that you'll help us to figure out what to make of our lives. How to live in the tumult of judgment. 
But Father, we pray that you might help us to grapple with what must take place. And that's worship. We pray for those who've come thinking that our pride would be tickled. That we'd be doing you some kind of favour by going into ministry. We pray for those of us who've come looking for our options. Help us to see that the only option is worship. The only option is obedience. And that the most wonderful thing is we worship the one who died for us. We worship the one who loves us and who's made us part of the kingdom and washed us by his blood. We praise you that to worship him is blessing indeed. And so, Father, we pray that we might do that this weekend. Amen.